0: Hello everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a special guest who is Manesh Gern If I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. Um so you go under the name uh the psychedelic scientist on YouTube, and you also are a scientist, a neuroscientist in particular at uh the Imperial College of London. Um And so today we are going to talk about psychedelic science. And um, the interesting part is that you actually are, uh, from what I've seen in your videos, you seem to know quite a lot. And you are very nuanced. And you are careful about how to report the science, which is different than a lot of what I see in other places, even, unfortunately, maybe sometimes in the science. So I think it will be a pretty interesting discussion. Hi and welcome. This is Quirky Science, where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host.
1: For sure. Uh, excited to chat with you. Um, just one clarification on the introduction. I, uh, I collaborate and work heavily with people at Imperial College London, such as Robin Parhard Harris, who's uh, kind of a pioneering neuroscientist in psychedelics. Um, but I'm actually based in Montreal, Canada, at McGill University. So I'm a PhD, uh, I mean, like the second half of my PhD over here in Montreal, Canada, at McGill. And yeah, I work heavily with people over in London who. Are kind of, it's one of the leading uh, research institutes for psychedelics. And um, so, yeah, primarily my research, like uh, my actual PhD dissertation focuses on the default mode network in the brain, which some some people might have heard of. And also just comparing the brain mechanisms underlying uh, psilocybin, DMT, and LSD and comparing them. And um, yeah, and I've had an uh, interest in psychedelics since my late teens and I've uh, always, you know, interested, have been interested in them from an academic and also experiential standpoint and just you know, kind of like my passion the, to the study and contribute to the world's knowledge uh, with regard to them.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my apologies for uh, uh, the mistake on the Imperial College London part. Um, so I suppose we can start off with um well i'll ask some general questions first uh so what do you think what do you think the psychedelics do like in your i guess opinion or what you think the research suggests
1: right there's a number of ways to answer this but i think um a way to describe it that's consistent with like how a lot of some scientists are thinking about it is that psychedelics um, kind of reduce the constraints on our experience, and um, you know in order to survive in the world and to operate uh, with a sense of stability and certainty about our lives um, we we can 't take in all the information in the world at once we are limited in how much information we take in from our senses and also uh, what particular memories or thoughts come to mind, and we basically have these. Like basically our ego, our, our, our ideas and concepts and assumptions of how the world works and who we are, kind of we live through those a lot of the times. And when we take psychedelics, these things become destabilized and things that we held on to with absolute certainty are now just up in the air and we're uncertain about them and, you know, we're kind of broken out of this um, sense of knowing what's going on and our sense of certainty about things now uh, we're in a state where almost anything can go and we start to come back to first principles, questioning our reality, who we are. Um, You know, even our sensory experience can start to break down at higher doses. And and also just like our sense of who we are becomes less certain and we're able to expand um, beyond that and see things from new perspectives and see the whole for what it is and feel this distinction between us and our ego identity. And so basically, it pulls us out of our usual frame of, of viewing the world and gives us this opportunity for insight um, and puts us in a pretty uh, flexible and malleable state, for better or for worse, depending on how we do take the psychedelic. So that's my short answer there.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. So so it kind of touches a little bit on that whole uh, relaxed beliefs idea. Mm-hmm. Um. So what I kind of, the way that I have tended to look at psychedelics is kind of as deconditioning agents. And so maybe that uh, we have a kind of conditioned sense of what, uh, like, as you said, um, what we know for certain and stuff like this. We kind of, this level of certainty might be a kind of conditioning that has, um, Arisen just from the repetitious nature of our lives, and then and then we of course get trapped in, uh, kind of like these uh, confirmation bias loops, where like or or self fulfilling prophecies that we tend to live in, and um, I feel like once we're once we're in a loop like that, we we kind of have this sense that uh, that everything is as we know it to be. And then, um, and yeah, so like the deconditioning, I think, I think this kind of, uh, from my perspective, I think that this is what is also occurring to the visual, uh, aspects in a way. Um, but I think it's like a little bit more complicated. Like, I think there's also things like, um, like some of the things might be an effect of like, a compensatory type of effect or not even just a compensatory type of effect, but like, um, like, so I think that certain of the receptors, like say 5-HC2A, uh, part of the function might be to reduce the certainty in the face of an event that we've experienced that contradicted our certainties so that uh, we can kind of assimilate the novel experience into our, uh, previous system of beliefs or, uh, perceptions or whatever it is. And so like, um, so like, I have a feeling that s- some of this, some of the effects like visually, they might be like the, the glutamate release that seems to occur. This might be like, like functioning to accelerate the learning processes, like, like, uh, maybe long-term potentiation or um, k- kind of just stuff like that, maybe, maybe uh, or what, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely, um, I think there is evidence for enhanced learning uh, in, in, in rats, right, in mice models. And, and it makes sense that, you know, uh, you know, the psychedelics activate primarily the two-way receptor that seems to be associated with their main effects. And the 2A receptor, in turn, is you know heavily modulates glutamate, increases glutamate activity. Um, and that's the, one of the main things it does. And then, yeah, in turn, glutamate spikes um, enhance neuroplastic markers, et cetera, leading to these processes. So, it makes me think of the idea um, that 2A receptor activation puts us in this hyperadaptive, flexible state where we're now we're open up to learning. As you were saying, kind of we're deconditioned from past, automatized behaviors, and we're kind of fully immersed in the present moment, ready to deal with what happens, and ready to uh, learn from what happens as well, and take in uh, the information we're receiving. Um, so I feel like during that state, yeah, we're in this hyperplastic state, maybe psychologically and, in terms of our brain, and this enables you know rapid learning and overriding of past tendencies and an ability to respond to the needs the dynamic needs of the moment uh, to a greater capacity um so i do think yeah in some sense psychedelics put us into that state which which can also be activated um in highly intense experiences more generally
0: and, uh, yeah yeah that point especially with highly intense experiences i think so much of the brain it seems like is kind of uh, Uh, like, so when we, we are fresh to the world or fresh to a new experience, I think that those things will tend to be intense. And then as we acclimate those experiences, we kind of learn how to reduce various elements of it, like how to drive while, uh, potentially like some people probably could drive with their eyes closed for some amount of distance, but like a new driver might not be able to. And, um, Mm. So, like, I think we kind of turn off the awareness of various things. And then if something comes along that is um, kind of new, perhaps it's, like, inherently louder, perhaps. Um, but it's kind of interesting, like, perhaps these psychedelics are kind of boosting the loudness of all the experiences in such a way that um, it's kind of... Uh, maybe that is part of how it's being perceived as novel or something like that. Like, um, if, uh, like, well, also the fact that intense experiences kind of can override a little, perhaps like presumably less intense experiences that we've had before, um, that might be what's kind of happening here with psychedelics. That it's just making everything more intense. Like, what do you think about the idea of the? Some people say that psychedelics are a general, um, like a non-descript uh, enhancer of experiences or whatever.
1: Yeah, amplifier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so that yeah, that's a common idea that originates with Stan Groff based back in the uh, thinking He wrote his book, LSD Psychotherapy, I think it was 1975, and he's like, yeah, after 4,000 sessions of high-dose LSD with a bunch of patients, he sees it as this unspecific amplifier of brain activity, or like of conscious um, activity, however you want to perceive that. And um, I think it makes sense. It definitely aligns with a lot of people's experiences in that kind of what we were saying before. Uh, in terms of, you, you call it conditioning, and me, I was kind of referring to like the relaxed beliefs model of how our beliefs kind of constrain our experiences and filter it. And the idea is that, um, in some sense, our concepts and our mental constructs uh, are kind of attenuating or reducing our sensitivity to what is actually happening. And so when they're there, we're experiencing the world through our concepts, which are... Um, of a lower resolution than the experience itself. And so when these constraints, when these concepts are no longer there with as much strength, we're able to see the raw experience to a greater degree. And um, that could be very intense. And I think over and above that, um, there's even, if you want to get more technical, there's brain research uh, showing that you know, psychedelics put the brain into a state that's more um, kind of responsive to perturbations. So when, when you have uh, a brain, let's say, if you think of the brain as a network, when the network is very dynamic and has lots of connections, when it gets a new input, it has more uh, ways it can respond to it. It's more dynamically flexible. And when it's sensitive to perturbations, uh, that also means that when you perceive something, when a, a sensitive input comes in or a memory comes up, the system is in a state where it's highly susceptible to being influenced by it so therefore that perception will take a much greater um, take up much greater space in your consciousness So you're in this highly sensitized state where internal and external inputs you know from the external world or from the mind are just amplified and have more space to take over and that's how you describe you experience an LSD trip where you you might see one thing and that's going to send you flying into, like, a negative trip. I mean, you might see a homeless person and be so, so, like, uh, hit by that. You go into a bad trip or see a beautiful flower and you start to cry with joy, you know, at higher doses. And it is this extreme sensitive, sensitivity and openness to raw experience. Um, but I, I definitely think there's something along those lines going on as well.
0: So uh, I'm going to go to this list that we kind of... Uh, developed before this podcast. Um, so the first thing that you wrote is that, um, or that I have here, I should say. Uh, so, well, I'll just ask it as a question. What what mechanisms might be most important for the therapeutic effects of psychedelics?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really important question because there I mean, Let me, there's a few ways to respond. So one is to say, like, yeah, like, kind of what we've been saying, psychedelics decondition us, take us out of our usual frame of perceiving the world, uh, and that provides the basis for having new insights into ourselves, which then, through proper integration, we can create new behavioral patterns and ways of perceiving the world, and et cetera. So that's definitely one. Um, Another one is that just purely that psychedelics on a brain level, um... Give kind of boost neuroplasticity, and so your brain has a greater default ability to rewire itself and overcome kind of ingrained negative tendencies. And some people even say this might be independent of these particular experiences that we have. Um, because, for example, there's research suggesting um, that you know people who are depressed just have a brain that is less neuroplastic, and that in mice you inject, like, for example, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a protein that increases neuroplasticity, you inject this in the brain of mice who are showing, you know, a mouse model of depression, they show less depressive symptoms from that alone. So there seemed to be something going on with neuroplasticity alone uh, that can help relieve negative symptoms and promote, perhaps, more positive behaviors. It seems to be independent of experience. Um, and then there's other ideas around this, you know, suggesting that, you know, for example, when people are really down and um, we use depression again, you know, when they're seeing the world through this negative way, they feel disconnected from everyone else and themselves. You know, but psychedelics wall can enhance our sense of feeling connected to the universe, to other people, and enhance the sense of meaningfulness of life. And that in itself can help overcome depression uh, symptoms. And then another you know, view of it is just like you have mystical experiences of feeling one with the universe, and which are associated with awe and a kind of humility, a sense of just being a tiny speck in this grand, vast universe, and that you know, can lead to changes. And so there seem to be multiple potential ways that psychedelics can lead to therapeutic benefits or just benefits in healthy people, and it's unclear which ones are most important, whether they can all be separated, um, etc.,
0: Hmm, yeah. So uh, one approach that I've been really interested in that, well, it's not really being talked about too much, but it's something that I've kind of been exploring a lot. Um, basically, so uh, I think I might have mentioned it to you a little bit uh, in a message or something like that, but there's this uh, neuropeptide called dynorphin, which seems to underlie aversive experiences uh or like the experience of aversiveness i should say um and uh so the drugs that simulate this are the kappa opioid receptor agonists so like salvia would be one of them or pentazocine, uh or ketazocine, or there's like a bunch of them and um so what's interesting though is that there's actually and there's only there's there's it's hard to connect some of the research on psychedelics and how they influence the system, but there is some uh, connections. So, so one of them is that 5-HT1A agonists, they uh, suppress uh, the dynorphin increase that typically happens with dopamine stimulation. And so, so the thing with dopamine stimulation, like the research on this is basically that like most drugs that people get addicted to Um, they stimulate dopamine release or something like this. And, uh, the dopamine D1 receptor happens to increase dynorphin activity. And so, so there's like most of the research on dynorphin tends to be on addiction and some of it's on depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and like PTSD, but a lot of it's on addiction where the withdrawal symptoms seem to be kind of related to dynorphin activity and also the tendency for like animals to um, go back to the drug through stress. And, and so like stress actually is one of the other areas of research that's that a lot of dynorphin research is on where it shows stress induces dynorphin activity and this seems to underlie the uh, dysphoric component of it. And then if, if we give people Drugs that uh, stimulate the kappa-opioid re- receptors, they induce dysphoric responses. And um, so what's interesting, though, going back to psychedelics, is that so 5-HT1A receptors seem to suppress the rise of dynorphin induced by um, dopamine stimulation. And um, there's also some links that can be made to 5-HT2A receptors, but it gets a little bit more loose because it's through... Um, it's through the metabotropic glutamate receptors, so it's kind of a little bit more downstream, um, but there is the fact that the effects of psychedelics, uh, they seem to produce things that are opposite to what dynorphin seems to do. So, for example, like glutamate release and plasticity, those are both things that dynorphin turns off, basically, and, um, or at least reduces. Um, and, uh, so dynorphin also can directly block NMDA receptors, which is kind of like the effect of what, like ketamine or something like that would be. Um, and, uh, so there is actually one study showing LSD suppressed the behavioral responses induced by kappa opioid receptor, one kappa opioid receptor agonist. And so... I think it would be really interesting if, if we find out that, um, that classical psychedelics might partially work by kind of mitigating some sort of feedback loop involving dynorphin. And, um, so with ketamine, what's interesting is there's actually like a 2020 study that showed that, uh, this stimulation of the kappa opioid receptor and the subsequent desensitization of it seems to be necessary for the antidepressant effects in animals so it might be something like like what if we are purging out like intensely dysphoric or um perhaps like scary or other things like uh And then maybe the rebound effect of something like ketamine, or that's the other thing is ketamine is acutely not plastic. It's, it's actually seems to be the after effects. I, I, there might be some, I couldn't find anything saying anything about, uh, the only thing I found about acute effects was suppressing like LTP and stuff like that, or long-term potentiation. Um, so I'm getting like too technical and maybe I should slow down here. And uh, so I'm curious, what do you think about all of that? Or, and it's okay if like, that's all super random. And uh, if, if you don't know what to say or something, that's fine too, but I'm just curious.
1: Right. Uh, so what you saying like makes sense, like how, how kind of how I'm understanding is that you know, dynorphin de- d- uh, is a marker of stress, right? And if you're in this, you know, for example, you're in a chronically steth- stressed state, which you can describe, for example, for example, depression as, because a lot of people, you know, chronically stressed um, when, they're under, when they're suffering from depression, have higher cortisol, et cetera. And so dynorphin perhaps is one of the things that's mediating the reduced neuroplasticity in people who are stressed out. And it's like, and learning disabilities and cognitive dysfunction uh, can be related to dynorphin. And so, yeah, it would make sense on one hand to have a psychedelic, which is kind of um, putting you in a less stressed state. Um, there'd be less, you know, there might be counter effects which uh, effects which counter the dynorphin activity or just reduce dynorphin levels in general as well. Um, so it would make sense that, you know, there, there are, I guess, two ways to look at it. One, maybe psychedelics, Reduce the amount of stress we have, at least transiently, or even for like you know a week or whatever, or even longer, and that reduces endogenous dynorphin levels, which then restores the neuroplastic, you know, restores the amount of neuroplasticity we have to something that's more normal. Um, Or another one is through these you know one A or two A mechanisms, kind of um, initiate some kind of cascade which. Which um, is like a countermeasure against what um, dynorphin is doing. Um, but it's interesting, yeah, because psychedelics work obviously through the serotonin system, but they affect the glutamate system. That's one of the main things uh, it does. Like serotonin is a is a modulator of other system uh, systems. And so, yeah, I'm not sure if any research has explicitly linked dynorphin to the response of psychedelics. I'm pretty sure there probably hasn't, but I think definitely dynorphin Sounds like an interesting downstream effect of stress, and that happens with a variety of different disorders, which is very likely changed by psychedelics.
0: Yeah, there's one particular. Well, I'm hoping this is what I hope there will be more research on in the future, because I really do think it will be something kind of important, because it would make sense. It would it would help make sense of like addiction. Uh, or at least the treatment of addiction with psychedelics and um, depression, possibly, and other things. Um. So the next thing that we can get into, um, do you think that there is an optimal form of psychotherapy for psychedelically-assisted therapy?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think no. I mean, hmm. Potentially not, because um, what seems to be the case is, well, first of all, if you look at the clinical trials to date, a lot of them use different protocols, you know, whether it's like a CBT-based thing or um, a ECT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, or just like, quote-unquote, psychological support with no particular paradigm, Um, or if you look at Stan Groff's work, the pioneering psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, he would use a more I guess, Jungian psychoanalytic approach. And, you know, there's a whole variety of approaches you could take, and um, it's unclear whether one is better than the other. I think what's most, what seems to be most important, and which is the case, actually, with psychotherapy in general, is what's important is that, you know, the client and the therapist have a good, uh, strong rapport, and there's a great level of trust there, and that the therapist provides a framework that the patient understands and is able to make sense of their um, current situation and which has embedded within it a plan for them to get better. So it doesn't really, it seems to be the case that it doesn't matter as much what that system is, but as long as it's um, believed by the patient and um, and they, they understand it and they understand the possibility of getting better. And uh, there's like a running joke in some sense of like, you know, um, Somebody does psychotherapy with a Jungian analyst. They see archetypes and mythological themes. Uh, they do it with a Freudian analyst, and they, you know, uh, see things. See their Oedipus complex or whatever. Or they do it, you know, with a different type of therapist, and just like see their modality emerging in their experience. And so, yeah, it's really unclear which is better the, than the other. Um, I think what I would think it it just requires over and above everything good rapport and trust with the practitioner and some system or model that appeals to that patient and seems to be a reasonable way of describing things.
0: Yeah, I like that answer. I didn't actually expect you to say that at first. but um, So this kind of ties into one of the things that I've been recently um, kind of viewing, I suppose, kind of the way that I am viewing psychedelics lately is possibly as um kind of a placebo enhancing drug so what i mean by that like specifically like the way that you brought up trust is kind of interesting because so so i think that something like whether or not it's someone is say suggestible i think i think two core uh, factors to that would be um Trust would be one of them, like trusting that the person giving suggestions is uh, worthy of believing or listening to, and then also per- potentially this idea of relaxed beliefs can fit in because uh, uh, your preconceptions about what you expect to happen uh, is that's kind of what is guiding what response you have. So if you ex- if you expect it to work, then the placebo, we would call that the placebo effect. And, um, perhaps if you expect it not to work, um, something might actually happen there as well, like a kind of, uh, blocking effect or something. But, um, but it's kind of interesting cause that does tie into what you said about how people's trips are kind of influenced by the suggestions of the, uh, the kind of whatever protocol is being used on them and kind of what beliefs are being pushed into the subjects of those trials. Um, So what do you think of this idea? (laughs) uh,
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I I also view psychedelics as kind of placebo enhancers because obviously, you know, set and setting are critical for the psychedelic experience and uh, your expectations and your beliefs around it, all the things that comprise the placebo effect are kind of very controlled, especially in the scientific studies. You know, the researchers will tell them, you know, you might have a mystical experience. You might experience X, Y, and Z. This has potential to help you with their disorder, obviously, because that's why they're doing the study. And just the way it's framed sets them up um, to be positively biased to have a good effect. And, um, and it's also, you know, uh, interesting studies showing. There's one study with ayahuasca where um, the placebo, they had placebo group and people who actually got the ayahuasca, and some of the people who got the placebo, because of their expectations alone, they felt like they were tripping, they purged, they threw up, they felt the whole deal like ayahuasca experience, more or less, and they got a placebo, they didn't even get the ayahuasca. So that shows mm-hmm. even how powerful the expectations can be, especially when you're in a context, in terms of ayahuasca, you're with a shaman, you're sitting you know, in a circle, maybe under a maloka, and it's very shamanic, and, you know, Amazon-y vibes, et cetera, and um, people have, a, like, almost a psychedelic experience just from that, and there were a couple of studies showing people thinking they're tripping when they took a placebo, and so, yeah, I, I, it's so interesting to try to tease apart the psychedelic effect from the placebo effect, and I'm not even sure if it's possible because, you know, it, it really is intertwined with our expectations. And this is something that makes psychedelics so unique and different from other you know, pharmacological interventions, other, other drugs. And also it also raises so many questions on how do you test uh, psychedelics and their effectiveness. Because usually you test a drug by comparing it with placebo. And it's like, how good is a drug independent of all expectations and beliefs and everything else? Um, but we know with psychedelics, you need that kind of stuff to get the positive benefit. And so it gets you into really messy territory on how to evaluate it. Um, this, especially the case with microdosing. There's a lot of studies, you know, ha, like really showing, um, providing at least some evidence for microdosing not being better than placebo. And um, I'm not sure if it's all placebo effect, like that remains, we can't make definitive conclusions, but um, it's an open question whether it might be at least primarily this placebo. Um, but then what does that mean? And and all the rest but uh, there's definitely a lot to be teased apart in the years to come around this kind of topic
0: yeah what do you think so this is maybe a little of a uh, well I've been thinking like what kind of possibilities might there be if this is the case that we can like like what if telling people like this this gets into weird ethical territory which is kind of why I'm bringing it up Uh, but what if we could tell people that bad trips are simply impossible or something like that? And, uh, and perhaps that actually makes it like the effects guaranteed to be more likely to be positive or something like that. Um, but it gets like really tricky because if the person had any distrust, then perhaps it would actually backfire and the person would be more likely to actually freak out because the, the, the the scientist or researcher seems to be lying or something like that so like i'm curious like what i I don't know what kind of do you have any idea of what strange possibilities there might be or uh like i feel like we could we could probably tell people all kinds of things about what the effects do and uh prime them to have different kinds of experiences like like even in the case of like it seems like some people say that realistic type hallucinations aren't either they're not common or that like there used to be people that would say that they just don't happen on psychedelics that it's a misconception but it does seem like people i at least i've seen people report things like that and it, and it seems that people report kind of drastically different types of experiences like some have sci-fi type of trips almost or like kind of like it's like they've taken um, NZT from Limitless or something like that and then other people are experiencing things that are like just kind of traditional and religious and something like that so what do you think about like that whole topic
1: hmm. can you can you re- repeat the specific question like can you frame yeah.
0: it yeah so I'm curious do you well I guess t- perhaps two questions do you think do you think we can program people's trips for one and for two um do you think that's useful do you think it's ethical um i guess yeah. that's it yeah
1: i think i think to some extent it's unavoidable right and definitely as i seen before researchers do do that a lot and but it's also the case that there is You know a lot of information available about psychedelics on the internet, and most people aren't completely naive to it. And um, uh, you know, some would say, I think Michael Pollan said this, um, that for example, in 19, what was it, like 55, when or 57, when Aldous Huxley wrote *The Doors of Perception*, he created a cultural set of beliefs around psychedelics that intertwined it with um, spirituality and mysticism and you know, and William Blake and all this. And that ever since then, one of the reasons why people report a lot of mystical-type experiences or interpret their psychedelics in terms of spirituality is because they're influenced in some deep cultural way by the early models proposed by um, Alt-Suxley. And also, even Albert, Albert Hoffman was often talking about things in a mystical way as a connection to nature and that kind of a thing. So I think in addition to the individual sets, there's the cultural set, and the cultural set is very embedded at this point and hard to completely avoid. So it's not clear whether people are like a totally blank slate, which we can program um, in certain ways. There's always going to be implicit things that exist in um, you know the noosphere in the in the collective minds of people who talk about psychedelics that I think can influence the experience. Um, so I guess the short answer is yes. I think. In terms of trying to push it in a particular direction, that's advisable and that's what people do and, and um, what's interesting, I guess, is the limitations of that. So I don't think it can be fully, fully harnessed um, just because people know too much, too much information accessible, but it would be interesting to see how the experience can be changed uh, through that.
0: What if we were to banish knowledge about psychedelics completely from the culture and then only the elites had the power to uh, create the narrative, I suppose. <laughs> that would be a kind of interesting uh, maybe utopia or dystopian kind of idea.
1: Yeah. that would be a good novel. Like you know, it's, it's like a society where they have access to this powerful psychedelic compound that lets you to create your own reality. but um, the way the context is given is always. Or you take it um, I don't know, to be a more productive worker and people just assume that's all it does until one person finds out they thought about something else and they had a different experience or something like that.
0: Oh man, that's, that's interesting. A, that'd
1: be a cool story. Yeah.
0: So um what do you think how about we move a little bit into creativity? Like how would you So I'm about to obviously ask how how you think psychedelics affect creativity, but first I want to know what do you think creativity means in the first place?
1: Right. To give a very scientific definition, how they define it is any um, idea, product, or thing that you you come up with that is on the one side innovative, it's something that innovates on past things, and two, it's something that's useful. So innovative slash novel, new, and then useful, and as in it, it could be used towards a particular aim. Um, that's one way of looking at it. You know, another one is just that it's um, in, the, in the case of let's say artistic creation, it's 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 the creation uh, or like. Yeah, the creation or synthesis of things in, a, in, a, in a, what can be considered a novel or a new way that didn't exist previously. Um, but you get into very messy territory, I think. But definitely a core aspect is an innovation that goes over and above the you know, elements that went into it or the previous things it was based on, like a new creation of some sort.
0: Do you think psychedelics boost creativity? And if the, if you do think that, uh, why do you think that? Or what do you think it's doing? I guess.
1: Yeah, I think they, they could, but perhaps not in the way that a lot of people think they could. Um, and kind of the research supports that too. Um, I think, you know, as we kind of mentioned, by uh, freeing us from the constraints of our of being reasonable. Of, of, you know, being realistic and uh, rational and, you know, putting limits on what we're allowing us to think or entertain because, you know, we, we like to be reasonable. By letting those go and also increasing, increasing our ability to associate various concepts, you know, it really just puts us in a state where we can create a lot of novel ideas and, um, you know, have ideas we usually would never even go to because we think it's too crazy or far-fetched. And so we basically explore a larger space of of various new ideas. Um, And that makes sense with, you know, psychedelic phenomenology, like how we experience it. At the same time, just because we have a higher volume of ideas which are far-fetched and out of the ordinary, doesn't mean they're actually useful or, or, you know, valuable. You can just have a a huge variety of bizarre, crazy ideas which make no sense and which you can't do anything with. Which, which definitely happens through psychedelic experiences. So I think what's interesting is to think about, you know, uh, what proportion of them are actually useful and if there's way to ways to constrain the creativity in a directed way um, to increase the likelihood of getting value, uh, valuable outputs. Um, yeah, at the same time, there are studies showing that in constrained creativity tasks, like for example, um, you know, they'll give you three objects and be like, oh, think of all the, the interesting ways you can use these objects or something like that. And um, the, the research doesn't, it's kind of, um, doesn't say, it. kind of leaning towards no, let's say, that psychedelics can increase that. So it seems that when you're given a specific task, to be creative in a specific domain. It's unclear whether psychedelics help you with that. Um, perhaps because psychedelics are too unconstrained and crazy and you can't harness it in a focused way towards a a defined task. Um, But then that's not saying they don't boost creativity at all because there could be other unconstrained contexts where you just have random ideas and insights that come to you that might be useful. Um, But to date, the research is really unclear on that. And there's no definitive proof from the scientific side uh, on how or whether psychedelics can increase creativity in the way that people assume they can.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I agree with uh, much of what you said. That was interesting. The part about um the unconstrained creativity, because that does make sense. That some of these tasks might um, they're they're pretty much looking for you to find a very specific answer or something like that. Um, whereas someone something that emerges as a creative solution, it might be something that just kind of. Uh, is not specific and guided necessarily. It might be something uh, almost arbitrary, perhaps, but maybe not necessarily arbitrary. It's kind of hard to say. Um, so, yeah, the idea that, like kind of tying it to the relaxed beliefs idea, yeah, I think that makes sense. And um, I think there's a kind of interesting element here where I've, I feel that society kind of trains us well well there's like a c there's a couple different things here. There is the fact that in in our lives we are kind of trained to see everything as uh fixed and also things become mundane, so we stop looking at novel ways of changing our environment around us a lot of the times because uh uh we're just simply not we don't care about a lot of the things like if we find a use for a tool. Uh, we're not usually sitting there trying to think of how else could we use this tool. Um, and we kind of just sit comfortably in a fixed way of seeing things. But I think there's another layer where people, um, I think culture kind of trains us to not have certain ways of thinking. Like um, we are kind of, uh, like, so, for example, we, we will often shame people for having wrong ideas, uh, especially like younger people might do something like that. Um, and there's, of course, things like, let's say, like flat earthers who are completely just ostracized for uh, coming to the wrong idea. But there's also less severe things that... Um I think I think we generally tend to kind of well it depends on the culture and it depends on a lot of different things but but there is this tendency to kind of uh, reward people for seeming smart or uh, not crazy not weird and different things like that it really depends though like obviously some artists are praised or even a mix of being praised and shamed at the same time for being weird but it can maybe some of this can come down to um, like like so the way I view like when people come up with these strange ideas uh, that people have on psychedelics, I think part of it might actually be that uh, that like it might depend on how maybe educated a person is, and maybe even there is no amount of education that can prevent certain absurdities because um, it's like we just don't maybe have enough well. I don't know if I would say that, but but even among highly educated people, I, I wouldn't expect that people stop having absurd ideas even. But I think if you think about what people actually know, I don't think there's that much of it. I think so much of what we seem to know is just purely a... Uh, like for 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 a lot of people, it's basically you must follow the expert's And if you know why you should follow the experts, it's because you're probably close to being an expert, I would say, Uh, because that's what it means to be an expert, is to know how that thing works in theory. Um, So I think a lot of society is actually more about uh, following what the experts say in a kind of religious way. And what might happen under psychedelics is that people stop doing that temporarily, and then they suddenly think of they're essentially like acting as if they were an expert on, let's say, spiritual thinking or uh, perhaps physics or mathematics or whatever they might do, and uh, they kind of have a disinhibition that allows them to think uh, more freely rather than kind of just agreeing with experts or something like that. So, like, the idea I have there is that the less educated a person is perhaps there's even more freedom that that person will have potentially because um like if they're just going based on what like just rationalizing based on what they've already rationalized about the world presumably there's less of it if you've had uh less time or less exposure to rationalized perspectives i guess Um, so this is like going on a bit here, but, but so I think like some amount of like weird ideas might tie into this kind of creativity and all of that stuff. Um, and, uh, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. Like if I understand what you're saying, it's just like we internalize standards of, of normativity within our culture and what's normal and what's prized and what's, What's um? What's the word? Validated or reinforced, and this kind of pulls people down from exploring these more wild ideas. And um, yeah, I guess through psychedelics we gain we gain um, we connect with a place that's just inherently so bizarre and so radical and weird that we have all sorts of ideas that you know wouldn't emerge given the constraints of culture. So I think that that definitely makes sense.
0: Hmm. So, let's see. So, what if we move into uh, the current state and limitations of neuroimaging research with psychedelics? What do you think on that?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there's been a lot of research over the last decade looking at, you know, psilocybin and LSD mainly, using neuroimaging techniques, and that's where you get these ideas about, you know, um, reduce your default mode network and, you know, get ego death or ego dissolution or, you know, dissolve your default mode, dissolve, and you dissolve your ego. And also of other things about the brain becoming more interconnected and all the rest. But I think, you know, a lot of the stuff coming from that realm is a bit overstated because to date, like the studies that have been conducted have been only on a limited number of people. So the sample sizes are pretty small. And not only that, there's still... Host a number of other just technical. Um, I don't want to say issues. I guess kind of issues or difficulties around doing psychedelic research for the brain imaging. That there's no consensus for and haven't been totally resolved related to people moving in the scanner, and also you know very technical stuff like, um, for example, a lot of times we compare let's say LSD to the placebo, uh, both. When people get a placebo, they go on the scanner. People get L C they go on the scanner on separate days, obviously, and you compare them. But um, it, it's the case that, for example, um, when, when you're in the placebo condition, as soon as you learn that you're in the placebo condition, you didn't get the drug, you're going to be a bit disappointed, and um, often people will get a bit tired while they're being brain scanned. Whereas in the other condition, when they get L they're like, yes, I got it, and they'll feel it, and they'll be awake and alert. And... Um, so, so when you compare the two in terms of the brains, uh, their brain activity, you not only get the comparison of the drug effect of the placebo versus um, LSD, but you also, you're getting differences based on just arousal and how attentive they are and um, also whatever's related to being disappointed in the other group. And so there's so many things that kind of confound doing comparisons of the level of the brain. And um, not only that, like a lot of the brain studies with psychedelics um, has been doing so-called resting state, um, uh, say, analyses. What these mean is like, you know, what LSD again is as an example, um, the one done in London in 2016, which got a lot of media attention, they use intravenous LSD, so they're getting injected with this stuff while they're in the brain scanner. And um, they did a scan for, I think, a total of, Let's say 15 minutes, uh, two sessions of seven minutes each, something like this. And the thing is, most analyses, when you average over seven minutes, get the average brain activity, and that's how you get the images you see in the media. But the thing is, obviously, in seven minutes of tripping, you're going through a whole set of different mental states. You're having a variety of different experiences. And these, of course, vary widely across people as well. How can you take 15 people, with seven, averaging across seven minutes of tripping each, put that all together and say you really learned anything in detail, right? It's very like stone age stuff of terms of how we're understanding it. And we need much more nuanced ways of measuring the brain that's more sensitive time-wise, temporally sensitive. And also that includes more deep and standardized descriptors, subjective descriptors of the experience, which we can link to the brain. And so there are efforts to build these things, but so far... You know they're not uh, they haven't been conducted necessarily. we're still very much in the early infant stages of brain imaging research, um, yet at the same time in standard media treatments, people talk as if we' have it all figured out and we know what's going on um so I think we're much like less far than uh, most people think we are in terms of brain imaging research uh, with psychedelics.
0: I sometimes call it. Uh, neuroimaging research, neophrenology, because I feel like that is kind of what's happening, I think. Well, the the good thing, though, is I think a lot of researchers are pretty aware of, well, I, I don't actually know, to be honest, but it seems like I've heard people talk about the limitations a bit in my, like, university courses and stuff like that, so at least it seems like hopefully too many people aren't having, like, crazy amounts of faith in like what we have going, like I've heard that fMRI research can't really be generalized and like you, you can't, uh, like you can't compare studies with each other and stuff like that because the settings are all different. And, um, and then there's that one study that just came out a while ago about putting a dead fish in a, in a scanner and it showed up with like having brain activity. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a weird, area of research. And, uh, I don't really know what to do about that, of course, because fMRIs are way too expensive. And, um, so there probably needs to be something just entirely different, like a new kind of technology that is not fMRI probably or something like that. Um,
1: yeah, for me, it's also, it's also, um, comparing across modalities. So people can, uh, collect other types of data like EEG which measures electric, electrical activity or MEGs which measure a measure magnetic field. And there's a lot of research kind of, you know, to give FMI its credit, there is a lot of research validating what FMI shows in terms of other modalities. Um, so there is cross-modality uh, modality kind of uh, reliability and generalizability uh, there. And, um, you know, the field is becoming a bit more standardized in certain respects. So I think you can compare across studies a lot of the time, Mm. Um, but definitely there are a number of uh, decision points in analysis pipelines, for example, which um, have not been resolved, and it just comes down, I think, you know, the psychedelic field needs to get clear on what analysis types are ideal for psychedelic data and what kind of, you know, how, how we acquire the data and how to standardize that. And um, there's definitely big disagreements out there. And um, one of the things I want to do, since I am a primarily neuroimaging researcher, is help create that standardization. And that's something I talked to, you know, with Robin, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris about, um, is how to do that. And I actually have a couple of papers I'm working on, which are towards this end, uh, which hopefully it will be submitted, submitted in the next six months, which are um, aimed at resolving these inconsistencies and disagreements Disagreements in the neuro emerging field for psychedelics uh, so I think there is potential there, and there is value there, um, but we just need to be yeah come up with optimal procedure guidelines essentially
0: hmm okay, yeah, so I, I hope that wasn't offensive when I said neophrenology i I wasn't uh I don't know that i'm I'm not that uh, I don't know that much about any of this. I'm p- coming from a pretty naive place so I'll spit that out there. Um, so I'm curious about, hmm, am I allowed to ask about if you've tried substances or is that like too far out? Or you could just say you've never tried them also, (laughs) but, um, what do you think?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm open to admitting that I've used to it. I think it's this weird double bind for researchers where, If you say that you've done it, people might say, like, oh, you're biased. You're trying to confirm your experiences. If you say you never did it, they're like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You never had the experience, right? Yeah. Like, for me, I'm like, yeah, like, I've tried it. That's one of my motivations for getting into this research area. It doesn't mean that I'm biased or trying to prove the psychedelic gospel. It just means that I I think they're interesting compounds and I've had first-person experiences with it, so...
0: There was yeah. that, uh, you probably saw at that recent survey that, that I guess a huge amount of people seem to think that, uh, that people who researchers that have tried the psychedelics are biased. <laughs> it's kind of funny that they did that survey. Um, so yeah, I, th-
1: I think it, I think it was that like people who hadn't tried them before or something or oh, okay. some, It was a very specific, uh, nuanced result. Well, yeah. I'm not sure if it was exactly that, uh, but. Yeah, yeah, but it is interesting. It's just it comes down to this like a general unawareness of psychedelics, you know.
0: Yeah. Know. And yeah. possibly an unawareness of just how biases work maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but um mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wonder what have you tried salvia? Uh
1: not like years ago. Yes, I have. The answer is yes. I've tried it I think twice, but it's been um a while back like maybe oh like 10 years ago <laughs>
0: hmm. what do you think of it what happened
1: i found it to be a very uncomfortable and jarring experience that i didn't <laughs> want to do again
0: all right that um yeah, I it, it... oh no sorry could you continue
1: yeah so i i mean it was it was just like very somatically discomfortable and i felt like um it just pulled me out of this reality, and I was like, oh, I'm never coming back. That's it. I've done it. That's kind of how I felt. And, um, and coming back, it was, I was just in a weird, irritable mood for like two hours that I couldn't shake. It just like messed me up for a bit and didn't, yeah, didn't provide anything of value uh, at that time. But I understand that people have very positive experiences and get benefit from it, but that's just not, not what I got.
0: yeah hmm so i'm curious um well uh yeah in my own experience i've i haven't gone that far with them with salvia um but it was definitely weird and uncomfortable but it was kind of mixed like during the experience it wasn't necessarily bad but i did notice like afterward I felt weird for a long time. Like, um I don't know, like it felt like it disconnected part of me from myself in a way, and I didn't really like that too much. Um, so have you tried dissociatives before?
1: Um only like ketamine. Hm
0: what do you what's your experience with that like?
1: Um Ketamine is interesting, like it uh, it's hard to describe the effects except for saying it's, it's dissociative, it puts you in know, an interesting mental state. Uh, of Yeah, I, I don't have that much experience with ketamine. It's very hard to verbalize it. I feel like I could verbalize psilocybin or LSD or DMT or, or ayahuasca more than ketamine. Ketamine is an interesting um, drug. I've haven't, I haven't done too many dissociatives before, so mm-hmm.
0: So how about what is, well, what's your favorite uh, serotonergic psychedelic?
1: I want to say uh, psilocybin for sure.
0: Yeah, me too. I love it. Um, What is your experience with it?
1: Um, I mean, for me, uh, it was the first psychedelic I did maybe. um, uh, How old am I? Yeah, maybe 10 years ago nine years ago. Um, You know, I've done it many times, dozens of times over the years. And um, for me, the place it takes me these days is just um, a place of calm-centered equanimity. Um, Obviously, you know, there's a trajectory I follow. The first hour or two are a bit more crazy, but when it levels off a bit, um, I feel very present, aware, a lot of vitality. Uh, I feel like talking to people, uh, I feel very alert. Um, and kind of almost in this optimized Buddha state (laughs) for a few hours.
0: Yeah. And
1: um, that's kind of the place I get to uh, a lot of the time. Um, And I have this interesting thing. I could take larger amounts and uh, still retain my ego capacity and my ability to function. And so, um, yeah, I use it as a tool for reflection, for refreshing myself, for bringing myself out of my ego structure out of my mental life and models back into reality and presence. And, um, it's often a refresher for that kind of a thing.
0: Hmm. So I wonder, so I like to ask people a little bit about, um, comparing, um, well, I'm curious, what do you think of THC? Like, have you tripped out on it and stuff?
1: I think the closest I've come is through edibles. I think that's a common experience for people. Um, Just having eating way too much of an edible, which is very potent THC content, and just like having a six-hour period where um, some even hallucinations, like um, like having visual imagery come up, closed eyes, not necessarily eyes open. Feeling dissociated from reality, kind of derealization type things, anxiety. Um, also, just when I was younger, smoking way too much weed and feeling like a, you know, I'm in a cartoon or something. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's only like I haven't gone there with THC in a long time. It was mostly experimenting as a teenager uh, that I had those experiences.
0: Hmm. Do you feel? Did salvia have? qualities like thc do you think
1: hmm. perhaps in a student respect um <laughs> i remember one time maybe when i was 16 me and my friends made a joint uh with primarily we but we sprinkled a lot of salvia on it that was a mm. fucking tripping experience <laughs> I, I felt like i was in a cartoon for like two hours uh and um yeah, I don't know. There, you get in some very interesting spaces with those. Uh, I, I do think there are, are similarities between really high, intense THC tripping um, and salvia. I think there are some similarities there. Definitely more similarities between them than with like the tryptamine dimension, for example.
0: Ah, uh, yes. This is actually what I was trying to kind of uh, uh, get out of you without directly like trying to bias you, um, but... Yeah, so, like, I kind of feel that as well, that, um, like, I don't really feel THC is similar to psychedelics all that much. I feel like mm-hmm. psychedelics, I tend to, I actually, like, freak out really intensely on THC easily, too, mm-hmm. like, on lowish doses. Um, and, like, I get psychotic. I've had, like, delusions, like the Truman Show type delusion. I've had hallucinations of people. and. Oh, I, wow. Like, but it's very short, usually like, and I don't fully always believe in those type of things, um, but I, it definitely happens. Um, Mm -hmm. and with something like psilocybin though, I've never even seen like a realistic type hallucination and I, I assume maybe high doses could elicit a thing, something like that. But I've tended to notice that they aren't that similar in my experience like i i can i can be around people really easily on psilocybin or even be in public but even though like i neces i wouldn't necessarily want that but i it doesn't elicit the same freak out that like thc has made me feel afraid even around people that i trust even for some reason
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um like, I get paranoid and like shut off from people sometimes. Like, sometimes it's the opposite, though. Like, I feel blissful and confident sometimes. But, um, but I did notice when I did salvia, I only did low doses. So, what I did notice is it was kind of like THC to the point that I actually wondered if I was sold spice. <laughs> um, which is like the, for those of you out there that might not know what spice is, it's, it's, it's like, uh, research chemical that's like thc but way uh way more intense supposedly um but it like so i never like blasted off on salvia instead it was kind of like it turned everything two-dimensional and maybe kind of like cartoony as you said Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and it felt like it detached my speaking like to, to where i would be talking and saying things and i couldn't figure out it felt like I couldn't really figure out what I was saying. Um, mm, yeah. And I've had that on THC as well. Have you experienced that?
1: With Savia coming out of it, I was just like a... Um, yeah, Being I dead. just <laughs> lost my ability to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I definitely know uh, what you mean by that. And I guess, yeah, when you smoke way too much weed, too much THC in the system, similar things can happen, but... I I feel like it goes much worse with um salvia in the, in the aftermath of salvia
0: THC actually stimulates dynorphin release and um that seems to be uh, key to the anxious or no dysphoric responses in animals like if they remove the dynorphin component then it uh is not dysphoric anymore THC isn't so it's kind of mm. interesting
1: yeah that is interesting it, it, Raises questions of like second generation versions of THC that, you know, uh, have some, have to pause, like kind of move out, uh, iron out those those dysmorphic uh, effects.
0: So do you think, I'm curious, what is, did you blast off on DMT? Could you explain that?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I've attempted smoking DMT a few times, and I say attempted because I don't think. I've had the full breakthrough experience, but um, I've experienced these bizarre visuals, uh, more or less immersive, immersive um, with shapes and things that could be attributed as um, entities, but not fully, yeah, not in a way like Terrence McKenna or, or would describe it, for example. So I don't know. It's a kind of interesting. It is quite difficult, at least in my experience. To smoke uh, enough of it and hold it in because it's kind of rough smoke, and you gotta do you know three tokes, hold each in uh, as McKenna always describes. And I don't think I've successfully done that yet, necessarily.
0: I wonder if you took like MAOIs and then you just like blast off and you're like stuck there for like three hours or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's not the most safe thing to do, but yeah, it's, it's possible, I think. Yeah.
0: Um, so what else um would you be interested in um and it's okay to say no to this but uh would you be interested in opening up the uh so that the audience could ask like a QA type of thing
1: yeah no i don't mind at all we could we could end off with that if you like
0: people may not even ask anything but uh there's it's worth a try uh so what we'll do yeah. is uh so there's another channel right above this called discussion. So we could all just jump right over there and Yeah. Let's see, everyone else is still Oh there it goes. There. It's there. So
1: yeah, we'll who's actually there and listening and who's just in the room.
0: Yeah. So uh uh, Love Tron, do you wish to ask anything? Can you hear me? Yes. Yep.
1: Uh, um, sorry, no, I don't have any questions.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just, I just came in to listen. Okay. Cool, cool. Um, uh, I, I didn't I want to say that, uh, I have a comment though. I, the, uh, I also have had eyes closed hallucinations on, uh, heavy dose of ingested THC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be like definitely more common when you when you're ingesting it like through edibles or some other uh oral way of taking it, which is interesting. I'm not sure why.
0: Have you um have you had realistic type hallucinations on psychedelics, like the serotonin type?
1: Um only with LSD.
0: And I took way too
1: much of it. I took way too much of it at that time. What was the <laughs> I like? think Um It was almost as if I went into an immersive dream-like experience where the dream was intertwined with reality. And I was seeing things that just weren't happening. Uh, At least I think they weren't happening. I mean, They very likely weren't happening. Um, For example, I would look at somebody's face and they would just transform between 50 different people in a span of a minute.
0: I've experienced Um. that sober when I was a kid. Um, Uh. I stayed up for two days and then I was at a sleepover and the guy, there was this guy, one of my friends was sitting at the computer desk and his face was just transforming into like all these different friends I knew, like even, even just like, mm. like totally changing. Um, and, and I asked them, who, who are you? It was really weird. <laughs>
1: yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's bizarre types of things that we can experience. Even in your case, it's like naturally it's insane.
0: Yeah, it's weird. Um, do you think that that might have to do with the D two receptor, or do you think that it was because just because you took too much of? Like, do you think it would happen with any psychedelic, or do you think it's LSD specific?
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. It, it honestly, it could have been, um, because at, at the higher doses, it just starts hitting those receptors more, right? Um, yeah, but who knows? I just maybe I just haven't taken enough psilocybin yet because. People do say they experience that with psilocybin, Uh, but it depends on so many things. It depends on the person's sensitivity, their personality, their own brain, and also, you know, sentence setting and and how much they took. So if you were to take, I don't know, seven grams, and um, perhaps you might experience some of these things, but I'm not advocating for doing that because that could be an extremely destabilizing, crazy experience, but it's hard to say.
0: Do you think it was... Kind of uh, suppressing your certainty for the face that you're looking at, or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's possible that you know. It was just yeah. It was just like scrolling through different uh, types of face that I have in my in my store of concepts. Right. It's like if you if you think of, it's almost like say so you think you have a, a category for um, you know people that are blonde and um, and so in your brain the person the, the category is blonde person within that category there's male blondes female blondes within that category is every blonde face I've ever seen and so I feel like in these experiences I felt like I was just scrolling through all the different types of blonde blonde is just an example but of that type of person. I was just moving through those concepts and it wasn't stabilizing onto one. I feel like that's kind of what was going on.
0: Hmm. Yeah. There was some research, I think that where they stimulated someone's like face area or fusiform face area or something like that. And, or yeah. I think it was with TMS and yeah, makes sense. their face, they experience like faces changing, but probably maybe not in the exact same way as this. But, but it's kind of interesting. Um, so, um, I'm sure that you're probably restless by now. So, <laughs> I could um I could wrap this up. If uh, uh, do you have any other things you'd like to bring up?
1: Um, no, I think we covered some good ground. Talked about lots of things, so I'm I'm content. <laughs>
0: Yeah, thank you for uh, coming up and doing this podcast with me.
1: For sure. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's always nice to chat about these things.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate what you are doing, like uh, your research and your uh, YouTube stuff. I think it is good, and I think you're going to get bigger. I don't know. I, I have a feeling, that I think it's going to work.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's fun. Yeah, thanks for listening. Love to (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. Bye. So, yep, I will see you later. Cool, sounds good, man. Take care.